And at the same time, I think it did a lot of good for Canadians. We learned that refugees are not criminals, they're not uh, malingerers. Uh, I mean, all the kind of criticism that comes from others about immigration refugees, Canadians learned firsthand that these were people who, who were forced to leave. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me on the show, we have Lloyd Axworthy, former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Employment and Immigration, and the chair of the World Refugee and Migration Council. What a title. Lloyd, thanks for coming on. Good to be here. Thank you, David. A lot in the news about the last 10 years on Justin Trudeau. You worked very closely at one time with his father. What's one thing that many Canadians wouldn't know about the late Pierre Elliott Trudeau? Well, I think there's lots of attributes. I mean, I think in some stuff I'm writing, I say probably the most uh, important event in my political career, which lasted 27 years, was being part of his government and establishing the Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just thought that was a defining, framing moment for the country. It certainly gave an agenda, a pathway for me to follow in my political career. And... uh, I think it took uh, somebody like uh, uniquely like Pierre uh, Trudeau, who both had the intellectual power, but also that he was a student of uh, of human rights and how do societies work together uh, to come up with that concept of a broad charter that would really reflect the diversity and the history and the experience of Canadians and. Uh, so uh, I, I think that would be his greatest attribute. Lloyd, how would you say the that being part of setting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in motion uh, has maybe shaped some of the things that, that you've gone on to do with your life and being part of the World Refugee and Migration Council and having such a passion for, for these sorts of initiatives? Uh, David, I think so much of it was bound up in the fact that at that time, I was also a minister of employment and immigration mm. and the, for the status of women. And uh, one of the important elements coming out of the charter was the acknowledgement that uh, newcomers would be given the same standing and rights uh, uh, as Canadians. And it was part of my job to uh, implement that, to to take the, the, the goal of the charter and actually apply it to the way in which the government works. So on several fronts, it also happened at the same time that we had the large surge of Indochina uh, refugees. I had inherited uh, the proposal from Ron Ackie, the conservative member, about uh, that this was a major commitment for Canada on a fundamental human rights issue. There was no real politic uh, other than helping people protecting people that uh, was brought to bear. I remember in the conversation I had with Ron, those are the days when people of different parties got together and had lunch and we talked about it. And he said to me that uh, being an immigration minister was a sacred trust. Hmm. That you had a real role in defining not only the lives of people who were being brought into the country, but also the country itself. And so part of my job was to make sure that that uh, commitment was and we ended up by having close to 60,000 uh, refugees arrive. And one of the key elements in that was the using of the personal sponsorship, which was a, 
uh, part of the uh, Immigration Act reform of 1976. But uh, it, it came about not not out of any grand design, but to bring that large number of people could be very expensive, and the government didn't have a lot of cash to spare. So I saw the personal sponsorship as one way of sharing responsibility mm. with a lot of Canadians, which it did. And I got to tell you, I mean, it, it paid huge dividends. People arriving, I think the idea of having a human face to greet them, to help them get settled, to find housing and stuff, really uh, was a real positive, constructive uh, influence on their settlement. And at the same time, I think it did a lot of good for Canadians. We we learned that uh, refugees are not criminals, they're not uh, malingerers. Uh, I mean, all the kind of uh, criticism that comes from you know, the bigots and others about uh, immigration refugees, Canadians learned firsthand that these were people who, who were forced to leave or mm. needed to leave for economic reasons or conflict or uh, persecution. And uh, as a result, Canada is still one of the few countries in the world where public opinion is still uh, quite positive towards immigration and refugees. And I think a large part of that was because Canadians were deeply involved and participated. They actually shared the responsibility. It wasn't a top-down exercise. Lloyd, some critics have argued that while Canada has continued to have this outlook on the world to be a place where immigrants could come, but the foreign affairs portfolio specifically has changed hands so many times that it hasn't been handled with as much care and diligence as when someone like yourself was holding that post. Is that warranted? Yeah, I, I, I think that's very warranted. I, I, but I think it, it, it was part of a, a general leeching uh, of, of foreign affairs and our diplomacy. I mean, the, the amount of uh, funding for our diplomatic efforts, a lot of funding for our international development efforts have really been you know, on the chopping block for the reduction of spending. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we're paying a price for increasingly uh, weakening our, our capacity to be an effective presence in the world. Uh, you know, right now, global affairs is underfunded and undermanned. It doesn't have the, the ability to develop initiatives, both domestically, to bring Canadians on board, like as we just described in the we did with the personal sponsorship issue, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't have the same resources to command the kind of convening power that I think we had uh, back in the nineties. Now the nineties were a very special time. You know, we were not plagued by big power bullying, and uh, there was a real commitment to rules of the law, real commitment to working collectively and collegially internationally i mean we're all we're in an era right now where those things are are under high duress both from the very you know the authoritarian governments the russians and the chinese and and, uh, the hungarians and all the rest of them there's a a book i've just finished reading called the paradox of democracy Mm. uh, which points out the fundamental element of democracy of open exchange and uh debate, discussion, uh, is also, uh, paradoxically, its worst 
uh, element because it gives it gives rise to the uh, the kind of uh, insult, grievance, horrendous sort of vile information that's being distributed, and that really corrodes our, our democratic systems. On the refugees, what about your your faith, your personal faith? Has this in any way inspired the conviction that you have to really care for refugees in the world? Yeah, I, I grew up in the north end of Winnipeg, uh, and my family attended a small United Church, Atlantic Avenue, in the corner of Arlington and Atlantic Avenue. We had some wonderful sort of uh, ministers, uh, Lois and Roy Wilson, and uh, that was still when the social gospel notion uh, of one's faith was exhibited by what you did on your time on earth. And mm. that, uh, uh, so I, I really always had that kind of uh, element, and uh, I, I always thought that that uh, has been one of the major influences on my outlook was the was those early days of going to uh, young people's meetings on a Saturday night and you know, discussing uh, what it was like growing up in North End, which was a very diverse area, very mixed, uh, a lot of people who just who were newly arrived. And there was always really debates about the kind of a caste system we had or the discrimination that was being faced. So, so yes, I, and I, I still uh, really uh, go back to that core funny. I, I think I, I illuminated on it uh, later on when uh, I was doing my graduate work at Princeton and became a real sort of uh, heavily involved in some of the, in the Princeton Theological Seminary. I didn't attend that, but they had a, a, a Reinhold Niebuhr became a huge influence on my religious outlook about the, the world is an ugly, difficult, hard place, but your, your Christian faith can help make it better. And I think that still was probably a guideline that I follow. Hmm. Really fascinating. Some would say that Jesus was a refugee when he was on this earth. Oh, yeah. Well, he certainly was a displaced person. <laughs> I think there's a scripture that says the Son of Man will have no place to lay his head. That's exactly right. What is your sense of the international community today as far as caring for refugees? You say the 90s was a real great time. Has Canada moved back, America moved back, or is it the world in general that's moved back? I think everybody's moving back. I think the the, the idea that there is a, a fundamental responsibility for the protection of others is... Uh, is not being followed in practice. In fact, many of the countries that were governments, societies that were uh, very much involved in a, a more open, uh, a collegial, international system of rights are now uh, retreating. I think we're paying a huge price for the, uh, the way in which uh, social media can become a, a medium uh, of hate and grievance and, and discrimination. I mean, it's a uh, I, I think it's, well, that's one of the issues we really have to work in figuring out. Because I think right now, we, you know, as I said, the paradox is you want to retain an open society with, with debate and discussion. But when that, when that sort of privilege is abused and it turns into a petri dish for hate and violence, then uh, you're not going to have a very tolerant society. Let's talk about the other countries that you've worked with in the past and even today, uh, you've been a part of some very major portfolios and 
and and pieces of structure like the Ottawa Treaty and and you even did some work in East Africa upon request of the UN Secretary General. What did you learn about how these other countries think? Well, well uh, I, I think the, the most important thing is to start listening mm. to them. Uh, I think there's been a you know, an inheritance from our colonial past, even though Canada was itself a colonial state, that um, we know better. We discovered, uh, working in the 90s, uh, that if you wanted to succeed in developing a sort of consensus, a form of agreement on defending rights and protecting people, that, that, that you had to have a broad base that couldn't be just Western countries. It couldn't be NATO. It couldn't just be Europe and North America. It had to have a much broader representation. One of the things I remember the Norwegian foreign minister and I set up what we called the Human Security Network, which had countries from Americas, from Africa, from Eastern Europe, from Asia, who were all part of it, that we were there. We were bonded by the idea that the protection of uh, of humans is as important as the protection of, of nation states. And that, uh, and we had a buy-in uh, that we were able to bring forward. Things like the landmine treaty, which, uh, you know, when it came for agreement, is still the most successful arms matter, uh, the treaty that's yet been devised. And it was led by people from, uh, not just from Canada or Europe, but from Mozambique, from Thailand, from Chile, were major players in putting that treaty together to say nothing of a broad base of NGOs, of civil society groups, a coalition that we work closely with, not as, not as consultants, but as participants. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, I mean, I guess part of the lesson I learned as a street politician from Winnipeg is that politics is the art of addition. And the more people you can bring on board, and, and not just in a perfunctory way, but in a real participatory way, uh, lends itself to really being able to provide a political base for change and reform. When it comes to the nation states' agendas that they have that you're trying to appease while helping the greater good, what does that dichotomy often look like that maybe the average Canadian wouldn't understand or be too far away from? Well, you know, it, it, it's such a mixture. Uh, I mean, David, one of the things that I think is probably most, one of the most corrosive influence right now is corruption. Mm. Uh, the, the use of, uh, of people to, who take political power and use it for their own benefit. And I think that that, that seems to become almost a pandemic in, it, in, in its impact. And yet, to, uh, and so one of the things that uh, we've been working on through the World Refugee Migration Council is to support things like a, a proposal that uh, when you freeze assets, as we're doing now in Russia, that we should repurpose those assets and give them back to the people who have been victimized by the kleptocracy that's going on. We're talking about a, uh, the importance of having an international anti-corruption court. But these are, these are ways in which uh, it's not a top-down issue. I mean, I, I learned, I was uh, involved, as you, you might know, in helping to uh, get the International Criminal Court implemented. Canada mm -hmm. was a, a major player. Uh, but what part of what people forget about that initiative is that uh, one of the strong 
proposals is that we that the international court be kind of a, a support for developing regional criminal courts and and that's been one of its more successful it, mm. it, it's it's been kind of bogged down in in its uh, outpost you know in in geneva but it uh, i think that it, in the, in the hague uh, but there there is a, a and we're seeing that today in ukraine a whole need to hold people accountable for criminal acts is really gaining some some momentum. So, uh, but I, I think that the point is is that uh, we still get hung up a lot on Western views, and we've allowed uh, sort of leaders like uh, we have now in China to turn that uh, into a uh, a battering ram against the values that we espouse. One of the real you raise the question: what Canadians need to know about is that right now they. Uh, influence spreading uh, intervention of China and Russia into southern countries to build bridges and ports and highways and all the kind of, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess you call vanity projects, has become very powerful and it supports authoritarian uh, leadership. We've paid a big price for the way that we have weakened ourselves and our ability to work with other countries. Uh, I mean, we we really uh, became uh, captured by hubris. I think we're Mm -hmm. paying a real price for that right now. I read your piece in The Globe about Putin being, you know, what what he's done, that he should be prosecuted for war crimes. What else is your analysis on this Russia-Ukraine conflict? Well, I I think extending, I I think first, you know, I, I think Alan Rock also wrote a piece that we have to be, as Canadians, an awful lot more active in uh, helping to move the international criminal um, process further. I mean, it's, it's now been several months, and I think uh, the sooner Russians, generals and admirals and, and presidents are start being indicted for criminal activity, mm. uh, the better it will be. It will start sending a message to the rest of the world that these are bad actors. I think that's one area. I think the other area that has been neglected is uh, efforts until recently uh, bypassing the United Nations. So I think it showed its value in negotiating a, a solution to the embargo on grain coming out of Ukraine and Russia for the Black Sea. I would like to see Canada go to work at the United Nations and get a uniting for peace resolution to the General Assembly because there's no point going to the Security Council, setting up uh, international peace monitors to look at what's happening uh, on the nuclear field. You've, you've now got really big risk globally yeah. and nobody's looking after it. And I think we have, uh, but if, uh, if you, here's the trick to it. Putin loves to sort of say, uh, you know, that uh, NATO and the West are sort of intervening. What happens if you have a UN group of blue helmets or white helmets looking really digging into the nuclear monitoring, but they come not from the US or UK or Canada, but they come from Mexico, they come from Indonesia, they come mm. from Mozambique. Is Putin going to start uh, attacking them? Is he going to start threatening countries that he wants to show that he's Mr. Good Guy? So I, I think uh, we've neglected that power of convening uh, that could be employed to bring a, a new, whole new set of pressures against Russia and Ukraine. If we don't, we're into this kind of 
no win, no lose proposition. Ukraine will hang on. We'll continue to make major contributions of, of supplies. But in the meantime, their, their financial economic systems has crashed. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that will be needed for reconstruction are being needed now to maintain uh, not just their military activity, but keeping their health systems alive and, and their environmental systems and their housing. I mean, these are big ticket items. And I think we need to have a much broader international coalition, but we can't get it because uh, Russia in particular has been able to isolate many mm -hmm. of the countries of the South uh, by sort of uh, their form of diplomacy. Is there some optimism in the middle of this conflict for the way that people have responded to immigrants coming from Ukraine, would you say? Yeah, I, I look at that. I mean, I, I think there's such a, uh, what's, the, what's the new word? Cognitive dissonance. Right. Between yeah. where a lot of people are and where their governments are. I think one of the advantages we have as Canadians is that we, we still have a democratic system that allows voices to be heard and public opinion to be expressed and to be felt through our representational system. A lot of places don't have that. Russia is a classic example where you've got a, a governing elite uh, that has no contact with its population other than to control it and use the modern techniques of surveillance and monitoring to, to intimidate it. And so I think that that's where we, we there is a, a lot of goodwill. I think there there's so many examples that we've seen through the work we do at the WRMC of people reaching out, uh, individual communities, uh, churches, schools, uh, uh, trying to help refugees. We, we've had a, a major task force working in the Americas with the migration surge coming out uh, of Central America. And it's remarkable the, the number of organizations, faith-based organizations, NGOs, some uh, local municipalities and towns and cities, which make a real effort. And I think there's a lot of governments. I think there are governments like ours that are still supportive of these issues. But what we've kind of lost is the ability to uh, to bring that to scale and to start tackling these larger global issues. Because I think we're, we're well. We went for a period of from oh, from two eleven on, where our the major uh, activity was the fight against terrorism. But mm -hmm. that that pushed everything else out of the radar screen. Now we've got the, the you know, the, the, the fights of, of the mastodons who are vying for, for power and for influence. Uh, that's pushing under the radar the effort to be far more responsible in protecting people and, and responding in, in a way where we, should, where we have responsibly to share. Uh, and so that's why I say we're kind of in a, one of those weather zones where the high pressure and the low pressure areas are creating major turbulence. Well, let's hope that these NGOs and other organizations and individuals continue to be empowered in places like Canada so they can have that voice. really appreciate you taking so much time. Lloyd Axworthy, former Minister of Foreign Affairs and of Employment and Immigration and still sits as the chair of the World Refugee and Migration Council. Appreciate this. Nice to be here, David. Thank you for the invitation. And if you want to read up on the Charter, the International Criminal Court, even the World Refugee and Migration Council, yeah, Lloyd has accomplished a lot, you can head on over to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. The Hockey Canada scandal has sent parents and aspiring hockey players reeling. 
Don't miss my conversation with former OHL star Jake Warad. Jake wrote an open letter back in 2015 titled My Farewell to Hockey. We'll dig into what he exposed then and why hockey isn't the only culprit of this kind of culture. There's a lot of notoriety and so with that notoriety comes a spotlight and I think as uh, as a teenager how you handle that or how you react you're not mature yet and there's people who are out there who are looking to you to be an example and people want to come alongside people who are famous thanks for listening today a reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the culture at a crossroads podcast we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in canada helping to better equip you in following jesus 